0: I invite you uh, to open your Bibles with me today to Jonah chapter 1. Jonah chapter 1. We're going to be reading verses uh, 7 through 16 this morning. Jonah 1, please rise with me. If you don't have your Bibles with you, we'll have it here up on the screen. Jonah 1, 7 through 16. Let's read the word of the Lord together. Then the sailors said to each other, Come, Let us cast lots to find out who is responsible for this calamity. So they cast the lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. So they asked him, tell us, who is responsible for making all this trouble for us? What kind of work do you do? Where do you come from? What is your country? From what people are you? He answered, I am a Hebrew, and I worship the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. This terrified them, and they asked, "'What have you done?' They knew he was running away from the Lord because he had already told them so. The sea was getting rougher and rougher, so they asked him, "'What should we do to you "'to make the seas calm down for us? "'Pick me up and throw me into the sea,' he replied, "'and it will become calm. "'I know that it is my fault "'that this great storm has come upon you.' Instead, the men did their best to row back to the land, but they could not, for the sea grew even wilder than before." Then they cried out to the Lord, Please, Lord, do not let us die for taking this man's life. Do not hold us accountable for killing an innocent man, for you, Lord, have done as you pleased. Then they took Jonah, they threw him overboard, and the raging sea grew calm. At this, the men greatly feared the Lord, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows to him. This is the word of the Lord given from him to you for your edification. Please take it as such. Please have a seat. The thing is always very problematic whenever Hollywood decides to feature God in a movie. It doesn't happen too often. They'd rather not for the most part, but every once in a while you get God in a film, and the question is how do you put God as a character into a movie? And one example that quickly came to mind, you probably have seen this, Bruce Almighty or Evan Almighty with uh, Jim Carrey and uh, Steve Carell, and God in those movies is played by Morgan Freeman, the, the narrator of our lives. He, he's got that silky voice. And this version of God, I, I've seen a lot of people respond very well to. He's very soft-spoken. He's likable. He's a little bit impish. But that's it. He's kind of portrayed as a wise magician who can do a few tricks. And that's really what he is. And I, I point to that example as an example of what pop culture, what our modern society kind of wants God to be wants God to be a toothless God. A God who is nice, who is likable, but if we have to have a God at all, he's not a God to be feared. He's a God that you kind of like. It's, a, it's a be, what I call a best buddy version of God. If you have to have a God, it's a God who's, who's there for you, to make you feel good, to make you feel calm, to help you with some of the issues in your life, but it's definitely not a God where you're there for Him, where you're there for Him. Well, if Hollywood ever cared to know how anybody would, anybody has responded to the presence of God, well, I could open up the Bible and show you many Bible verses of what an actual encounter with God would be like. It wouldn't be Jim Carrey joking around and getting all sarcastic with Morgan Freeman. Let me tell you, none of the accounts in the Bible feature people who are flippant toward God, who are irreverent toward God. That tends to be, when somebody encounters God, the phrase fear and trembling comes into play almost every single time when a sinner meets the absolute definition of holiness. When you step into the presence of the holy, it does something to you. And it's terrifying. Well, in our passage from Jonah today, we've gotten to the point where the crew on board this ship in the Mediterranean Sea, sort of come to this realization that they are in the presence of God. They are not in the direct presence of God, but they are seeing the effect of God, what God can do, and they are speaking to His mouthpiece, to His prophet. So they are, in effect, in the presence of God. And their response to this presence of God is a good reminder of how we, as Christians, respond to God. In our day-to-day lives, how we should respond to God instead of treating God as our best buddy. So I want us to look at this passage—a rather longer passage—but it all kind of flows together as we look at how we respond to coming into the presence of God. Well, last week we left. Remember, we left poor Jonah on the the top of that ship, and the ship's going up and down, starting to break apart, and he's just—he's got a bunch of silence. He's not responding as the sailors say, you know, call out to your God, pray to your God. Instead, his stubbornness is standing firm. And as uh, as God's thrown the storm at the ship, the sailors are responding by praying to all their gods, but Jonah responds by going into sleep, into slumber. He's trying to escape even further. So by the time we come to verse 7, which brings us to our passage today, we, it's really we see the crew at their wits' end. They have done everything logically possible to save themselves, right? They've, they've um, tried to navigate this storm. They've tried to pray to every foreign god they can think of. They've even taken their cargo. They've dumped it overboard. Nothing's really helping them out. They've got no other recourse. So really, they've gotten to the point where this ship, this empty ship at this point, is bobbing up and down, threatening to come apart. So they go, really the last thing we could do is to figure out why this situation is happening. Because by this time, it's obvious, it's clear to everyone on that ship that this is not a normal storm. This is a supernatural event brought about by a higher power. Now what that higher power is, they don't know, but it's very clear to all of them, this is not normal, this is very strange, and it's going to be the death of them. So they figure, you know, we might as well get to the bottom of this. We've got a couple minutes left in our lives. We might as well figure it out. So in the ancient world, whenever you want to divine the will of the gods, you want to figure out what a god was thinking, there's a bunch of different techniques that they would use. Uh, Sometimes they would look for signs in nature. Sometimes they would look at the organs and the entrails of a slaughtered animal. Kind of the gross sort of figuring out what God wants you to do. But a very common way that they would do this is they would do something called casting lots. And something we've seen throughout the Bible. You may remember this from like uh, when Jesus is on the cross and they cast lots for his clothes. Well, here they cast lots. We don't know for sure 100% of what casting lots entails. By the best, you know, most scholars say probably it involves throwing a couple of dice. And the dice would have like, black or white markings on them so you would throw them and if you asked the question the gods and you throw the dice and the dice were two black marks then that was a yes and if it was two white marks it was a no and if it was one of each it was a ask again later kind of situation it's like those magic eight balls did you ever have one of those magic eight balls and you'd ask a question and you'd shake it and it would bubble up to the top and say yes no, ask me again later. You're talking to a ball. What's wrong with you? I, you know, there's, we always had those, those magic eight balls. Well, that, that's what we think was the casting lots. So they cast the lots. And at this point, they're, they're going around. They're saying, like, is this guy, you know, is, is Bob here? Is he responsible for the storm? They cast lots. No. Is this guy? No. And for everybody, it's no. And they get around to Jonah, and they cast the lots. And it's Yes. And Jonah recognizes right away that's God interfering with the lots. And the lots, you know, we're not going to say every time God was doing this. But in this situation, God definitely was pointing a big, fat arrow right at Jonah. That Jonah was the guy that caused this situation, whatever is happening. So we saw in these verses today that they instantly start peppering him With all of these questions there's a series of five questions they don't I mean in the in the scriptures it sounds like they don't even stop to let him respond but they're just like who are you where did you come from what's going on like tell us all this information and Jonah who was silent up to this point he realizes God brought this storm on God has manipulated the lots there's really no reason for God to stay silent any longer or I'm sorry, Jonah just stays silent any longer. So Jonah makes a full confession. And he says in a verse, he says, I am a Hebrew, I worship the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. And the text also implies that he goes on to tell them why he's running away from God, kind of filling in this backstory of his flight away from this great task that God had given him. Well, if you thought that the sailors were scared before as They were scared for their own lives. By verse 10, they discover a new level of fear, a new level of terror that they had never known in their life, because it tells us they they somehow found a new level, that they became more terrified than they ever were before. They've just been told that Jonah's God isn't some sort of mid-level deity in their lives. Remember, these, these sailors, they worship all sorts of gods. They're used to pantheons, of gods. All these countries all around them usually had like a good dozen gods apiece. But they're told in this moment, Jonah says, my God is the top God. My God made everything. My God is supreme over everything. My God made the world. My God made the seas. And they believe him. They hear this truth and they believe him, and they are terrified of this, because their response right away is effectively saying, Jonah, are you crazy? What were you thinking? You're disobeying the biggest God of the world, and you're running away on the very sea that he made. What were you thinking? Remember, it's that junior high level of, you know, I wasn't thinking. I was just, I was reacting. So these sailors have now found themselves in the position of literally being in the hands of an angry God. And it terrifies them. It's a place you never want to find yourself. Have you ever th- I've, I had some friends this past week, I know we did a whole series on heaven and hell, and some of my non-believing friends were joking. You know They always do that. Well, I know I'm going to hell, and all these jokes about that. And all I'm thinking is, if you were really in the hands of an angry God, you would never ever joke about that, even if it was just for a second as they are here. Their, their souls, they may not know much about this God. They weren't brought up in Israel. They didn't read the Holy Scriptures, but their souls instinctively know that they are sinners. That are right now in front of a God who is perfectly holy. And to their very core, they are terrified. They find themselves trembling with reverent fear. Now, this is something I, I think it's important for every Christian to come to terms with, that God wants us to have a healthy amount of fear in our lives toward him. But this isn't the kind of fear that the sailors have. The sailors are having a fear of an unrepentant person who's also terrified for their life. It's kind of a, a panicked fear, a fear of reaction. But God in us wants to install, instill fear and trembling, but this kind of fear that he wants in our hearts is a fear of deep awe and a deep reverence. I think the sailors were also starting to brush up against that as well. That when we come into God's presence, we are not meant to come flippantly, casually, disrespectfully, making jokes about our God, but we are to come in His presence with fear and trembling. Philippians 2.12 actually instructs us. It says, continue to work out your salvation With fear and trembling, with that sort of excitement mixed in with this awe and this reverence. And you've probably experienced a bit of that in in your life. If you come upon a sight in your life that is just magnificent, but at the same time, it's overwhelming. And it causes you, if you stand on the lip of the Grand Canyon and you look down, you tremble, even at the same time that you're excited to see it. And that is that mixture of fear and trembling that we have in a greater respect when we come to the presence of God. These sailors were having an honest reaction to God that they learned when you come into the presence of God, you come with trembling before a God who could do anything to you, anything at all, and it would be good because He is a good God. But you come into and you basically put yourself in His hands, in His arms. I think a lot of Christians in the church today, we like our God at arm's length. We like God to be far away because if He's too close, we really have to face who He is. So it's very comfortable if we kind of keep God out there. We pray to Him like we're sending Him a long-distance message. We read the Bible as if it's coming to us from 2,000 years ago. But then when we realize God is right here and right in here, and the Scriptures are alive, and He's working in your life, you start to get a bit of that fear and trembling. And it's a good thing, but it's a scary thing. It's something we need to have to go forward in our relationship with Him. Well, there were uh, four ministers who were sitting around having some fellowship in a coffee house one day. And as pastors do, they started arguing about the interpretation of a particular Bible verse. This is what we nerdy pastors do. They they got around, they're sitting around, they're drinking their coffee, they're arguing about what interpretation was the right interpretation. And one of the pastors, a guy named Tim, he, he prays out loud. He's like, Dear God, I know I'm right. I know my interpretation is the right interpretation. So give my friends here a sign that I'm right. Well, at that moment, the, the skies grew dark outside the coffee shop, and a rumble of thunder cracked through the sky. And he looked up. He's like, Look at that. I've been given a sign. Guys, God's obviously saying my interpretation is the right interpretation. And the other pastors just shook their head. They're like, that's just a coincidence. And in the very next moment, a bolt of lightning came down right outside the coffee shop, split a tree right into in front of them. And the other pastors went, ah, it's a freak accident. And then the, the whole store shook as a voice from heaven came down. And said, Tim is right. Listen to him. And the other pastors crossed their arms and they said, It's still three against two. My point is, never underestimate the stubbornness of a sinful person. We are so good at being stubborn. I'm throwing my I'm exhibiting right here. I am one of the most stubborn people in the world. Stubbornness is in our roots as sinners, and it's so hard to get past that. We've been tracking how stubborn Jonah's been throughout this whole book. And I think it's good to hold him accountable for what he did, to look at his sins. But I also want to say that there is a glimmer of virtue in what he does here. Let's not be completely down on Jonah. Remember, he is God's prophet. He is a godly man even though he's making a lot of questionable decisions at this point. And at at this moment, he's not repenting of his sin, but he is accepting the consequence of it. And on top of that, he says, I want to save these people because it's my fault they're in this situation. It's my sin that's brought us to this point. That's why sin is so deadly. That's why it's so horrible. It not only hurts you, but the consequences of your sin ripple out and they affect people around you. And that's why we need to address that. That's why it's so harmful in our lives. And so Jonah tells him, he says, on behalf of God, here's what you need to do. You need to take this sad sack of a prophet and you need to toss me over the side of the ship. If you do that, toss me into these waters, everything's going to be okay. Well, now the sailors have been given a command from God's own mouthpiece. They've been given an order from this newly discovered supreme God, over all things, and they're told to obey, but from their perspective, you can probably see it, they're on the horns of a dilemma. Well, if they throw Jonah overboard, and if his word actually comes true, then they're saved, but they've hurt and killed an innocent man. But if they don't throw him overboard, they're sure to die. So either way, they're they're in a bad situation. So what do they do? Well, I love these verses because they kind of make me chuckle at the stubbornness we see from both from Jonah and from the sailors. Jonah's over here; it's like, just throw me overboard already! Just you know, they're trying to be noble. Just throw me overboard, sacrifice me, everything will be okay. And the sailors are going, "We're not going to do that. You're a nice guy. You're an innocent. We'll try rowing to land in the middle of a storm." I mean, obviously, this is like they're getting it. So both of these groups are being super stubborn, and the crew tries to to row to the shore to save everybody but obviously it doesn't happen it's the the scriptures say the storm even got worse at that point it's like God saying it's not going to happen but when it comes down to it really the crew has been given an order from God through Jonah and they have a choice they can obey it or they can't or they won't obey or not They say that there are no atheists and foxholes that in moments of life and death situation, everybody prays to God. I don't find that true. I don't think that's true at all. But in this passage, we certainly do see these non-believers and the one true God casting aside all of their foreign gods. They've stopped praying to all their foreign gods. And they come together in this moment to jointly pray to the one true holy God. They ask God for mercy, and they remind God that they are, well, now finally obeying his orders. They're concerned. They're saying, God, Lord, whoever you are, we'll obey, but just keep in mind, you're telling us to kill this man. And we recognize he's innocent, and just please keep that in mind as we throw him over the side of the ship. But if you have your Bibles open, the one phrase I want you to really look at right here is they make this profound statement. Out of the mouths of babes, really. Out of the mouths of these pagan sailors, they say this. They say, you, Lord, have done as you pleased. You, Lord, have done as you pleased. What a profound statement. That just arrested my attention as I'm reading this, of course, from the perspective of a Calvinist who really believes in the sovereignty of God. And out of these pagans who don't know God from anything, they say, you, Lord, do what you please. That is who you are. No matter what we demand, no matter what we want you to do, you are a great God and you will do what you please. That is who you are. It pleased God that in this moment, the sailors take Jonah and ditch him into the sea. Because God had a redemption plan in mind. The sailors didn't know that. Jonah didn't know that. Sometimes God asks you to do things you don't know what's coming. You don't know what he has planned. He's asked you to do a thing that you think is impossible or you think is a wrong thing for God to ask you to do, not, a, not an evil thing. But he's like, God, that can't possibly be the right thing in this situation. And God says, trust me, do this. My pleasure, my will needs to be done in this situation. And the sailor said, well, he's such a great God that he commanded this storm, that he put us in this situation, that he's going to do whatever he darn well pleases to do, so we might as well get on his side. We might as well do what he wants us to do. God said through a different prophet, through Isaiah in Isaiah 46, God said, my purpose will stand. My purpose will stand and I will do all that I please. When you face that, sometimes you want to get really stubborn. Sometimes you want to look at God and and then say, yeah, but. There's nothing you can say after the yeah, but that's going to really change God's mind. But it brings out this defiance in us going, yeah, but my wisdom's greater than yours, God. My ideas are better. I think you should do this. Yeah, but it's not right that you ordain all things. Yeah, but. Yeah, but nothing. His purpose will stand and he will do all that he pleases. So your choice is really that you can obey him and get on his side, or you can pick up an oar and try to row through a hurricane. One of those is significantly more exhausting than the other. I have fought against God in my life. I have seen where God tries to lead me and go, no, I want to go the other direction. I want to be Jonah and figure I'm going to just do my own thing. And it's exhausting living that kind of life. Because you know you're going against God. Because his will is going to be done in the end, whether you like it or not. So what are you choosing to do? Well, I always find it very interesting in Scripture of looking at their reactions to people when God comes and does something in their midst. We already talked about how when people come into the presence of God, it's almost nearly universal that they come into God's presence with fear and trembling. But when God works and does something in their presence, then there's another reaction entirely, and that is that they worship God. That there's this reaction to worship. That they see something amazing, something they've never seen before in their life, and they come out and they worship Him. When when the Hebrews were crossing the Red Sea, and they looked back and they saw how God had parted the water, and then the Egyptians start bringing their army across, and God brings the water together, crashes over them, their response is to break out in spontaneous worship. They have the mother of all worship services on the far shores of that sea, and they worship the one great God. We see this later when Jesus died on the cross, and his last breath goes out. It is finished. A great earthquake, lightning bolts, and the centurion, the pagan centurion at the foot of the cross looks up and says, surely this was the Son of God. He worships. When we see what God does, we worship. And when God's prophet told these sailors, toss me overboard, the seas will calm, and they did it, and in verse 16 it tells us that their fear intensified when they suddenly saw how quickly everything went, went still. Remember, that's the same reaction of the disciples. When they're on the Sea of Galilee in the great storm, and Jesus says, be still, and instantly nature obeys. Sometimes nature obeys way faster than we do, because nature knows it's God. Nature knows it's creator, and when its creator says, be still, it's like, yes, sir, I will be still. And the second the waters are still around these sailors, their fear intensifies. They find a new level of fear and trembling, but at the same time, it also moves them to worship, that they worship. They go to the shores. They have a sacrifice. It says they make sacrifices. They make vows to God. Now, I don't want to go too far here and assume, as, as some people do, that suddenly all these sailors have converted and they've become Jews. Uh, the scripture doesn't tell us that, but it definitely says that they responded rightly to God in this situation, that they saw what God did and they worshiped him. James 4.8 promises, it says, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. The closer you start getting to God, the closer you find that He's meeting you in the middle here. He's coming right at you. And so these sailors, they're learning to fear the Lord. They're learning to obey the Lord. And now they're learning to worship Him. They're drawing near to God. And I have to think, God is starting to draw near to them. Maybe we will one day in heaven encounter these sailors. And we will hear their tale. But I don't want to go that far and say that for sure they were saved. This passage does not line up with what the world says about God today. When we examine modern culture, we see really this pervasive belief that God is only here, solely here, if he exists at all, to make us happy, to serve us, to be there as some sort of moral guidance coach and a Santa giving us gifts. And then he is to be put aside. He's kind of like our security blanket that we drag around if we're really that weak-willed in our lives. If we really need a God to drag around, we can have this God. He's like Linus dragging his filthy blanket around in Charlie Brown. But the Bible tells us otherwise. This passage tells you of a God who needs to be feared, a God who needs to be obeyed, and a God who needs to be worshipped. That God is not here for us. We are there for him. We are created for His glory. And as much as He will bless you, and He does love you, and He does redeem you, and He does come to you, you are made to be there for Him. And this is why it breaks what the world says completely and turns it right around and says, this is the God of the Bible. You can get on board with it, or you won't, but that's your choice. But let's not water it down. No pun intended. Let's, let's not take this God and make Him some sort of lukewarm God that we doesn't even deserve our worship. He's just there when we kind of need Him. I think that's the lesson that the sailors of that ship took with them. I hope they went and they told people about this God, this God that conjured up a storm out of nowhere, this God that could calm a storm in a second flat, a God who is meant to be worshipped, a God who is deserving of being worshipped. You worship, hopefully, a great God. A God who made everything. A God who made the land, and a God who made the sea. The God of the storm. The God of peace. The God of mercy. Let's worship Him in our hearts this week. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, when we come before You, it is always should always be with fear and trembling. Even as you invite us into a familial relationship with you, to call you Father, to sit on your lap, to bring our requests to you, Lord, may we never do it taking you for granted. May we never do it forgetting what you made, what you did, what you sacrificed. Lord, may it always make us, as the hymn said, cause us to tremble, Tremble, tremble. But Lord, may that trembling be not just with fear, but with joy, with excitement, with knowing that our God is the masterful God. We're not just worshiping a small sort of local God. We're worshiping a God who is above all things, a God who is completely holy, sovereign, a God who is completely and wholly good. Lord, one day we will come before You, and You will ask us, Why should you come into heaven? And we will answer, not because of anything I did, Lord, but because you are great, and your son died for me. And out of that, you have forgiven my sin, so I can come into heaven because he took my sin. And because you are a just God, and it is the just thing to do. In that moment, our fear, our trembling, will be replaced wholly with joy. And we will come into your presence. We will enjoy you forever. I look forward to that. So thank you for this glimpse, Lord, today, this glimpse from Jonah, this taste of what a great God you are. May we never forget it. May we live it, Lord, in your name. Amen.